Hello friends, and welcome to Anything But Toto, the music podcast where we listen to anything except Toto. I'm Julian Muya. And I'm Bianca Tamori. And Bianca, this is a big episode for us. This is a big episode for us. This is the first episode that we're recording since we actually started the podcast. <laughs> it is. We had a few uh, we had a few backlogged and uh, we took an unintentional one month hiatus because we moved in together. We did. We have a brand spake a new apartment. We love it so much. Fully decorated. It's a mid-century modern palace. And mm-hmm. a, a, a Toronto apartment palace, we're talking. Yeah, I actually think that we're better at designing living rooms <laughs> and picking out lamps and credenzas rather than being podcast hosts. Yeah, so we maybe do, we should change what yeah, we're doing. Full change, of course, in, a, in our professional trajectory. But yeah, we're super excited to be here. So it's the first one recorded in the new pad. But we also just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you guys for for your support. Like there's been people who I've never met before who've kind of just found us through listening to it on Apple or Spotify. People I I was friends with in elementary school, people I went to high school with, like people I had just like randomly had on Instagram messaging me these paragraphs about the podcast and how, you know, they love like content like this where you kind of analyze music and, and we're huge nerds of that too. And we love content like this too. So it's just, it's been a fun discussion we've been having with people through instagram dms and whatnot so what we wanted to do is we wanted to have a place for that conversation to continue so if you guys ever want to write in and send us a question whether it's a music question an episode suggestion or a song to review maybe at the end of an episode we can review a song yeah we'll we'll tack on like a little mini analysis at the end if there's one in particular like oh like why do i like this song so much i can't put my finger on it maybe we can help you and maybe we'll read a couple of emails at the beginning of an episode so send us anything you want to send us send us pictures of your cat send us your favorite recipes from your grandmother whatever tickles your pickle maybe not that far but send us whatever (laughs) you fancy at anything but toto at gmail.com okay so if you want to get in touch you can send that there um, we also kind of going off of that, if you guys do love the podcast or, or like it, I should say, please, 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 if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That means so much to us when you're able to. And if you're feeling extra kind, you can always write a review as well beyond the, beyond the five star. I'm just going to assume that you're going to give it a five star. Wouldn't that be kind of funny if I asked you to give a review and you're like, of course, I'll give you a review. 3.5 out of 5. <laughs> anyway, if you guys want to write in, though, we got that all set up. So we're excited to get talking with you guys and continue the conversation. But yeah, we got a big episode for today. Yeah, this episode is a bit of a change of pace because as you're well aware from our first two award-winning episodes, yeah. <laughs> um, we reviewed two somewhat recent albums, Sour by Olivia Rodrigo and Sob Rock by John Mayer. And we decided that we wanted to change things up a little bit and, and maybe show you another side of yeah. Julian and Bianca. <laughs> this was also recommended to us by a listener via Instagram. They said, why don't you guys start analyzing perfect pop songs? And I was like, oh, damn, that's on our list and we should definitely get on that. So yeah, so that <laughs> that is what we're doing today. We're going to be looking at 10 perfect pop songs. Like perfect pop songs. So we each picked five. We don't know. Um, what our thoughts are on those. We know what songs we picked, yeah. but we didn't actually talk about our feelings about these songs. Yeah, we had to listen in private so that we wouldn't spoil our opinions with each other, which is really difficult with you and I, and especially now that we're like together all the time. Yeah. Especially, it's like, Silent I say this all the time. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so what we did basically was um, we each picked five, and the way that this episode is going to be structured is that Bianca will talk about a song she picked and why she picked it, and then I'll talk about one, and then yeah, so on back and, and so forth. forth. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's going to be, I think, mine. one of my picks are the first ones. 
is the first one, sorry. And then, yeah, we're going to go from there. So So maybe before we jump into the songs, we should kind of talk about our definitions of a perfect pop song. Maybe just a a little summary of what you think a perfect pop song is. Okay. I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about this because you're like a wizard with this stuff. So in my mind, it's pretty simple. A perfect pop song is one that you hear it once and you cannot stop singing it. It's something that is inescapable. It's an earworm and it's an earworm for a reason. It's so masterfully crafted that you simply cannot get out of your head. Um, meaning it's sophisticated enough where it's different from the bunch, but it's also accessible where the average person, maybe with no musical um, education or experience or analytical tools, they can still remember the song and it'll stay with them and they'll hum it forever. And they, they might not know why they like it, but they do. To me, that's the perfect pop song. Okay. Accessible. I, I would say I have the exact same definition as you, but I think that for me, there's another layer, which is a perfect pop song is a song that's almost like a puzzle. Like the pieces have to go together. You would, you can't change one thing. The verse needs to be that verse. You can't change one yes. note. It's a perfectly manicured song. And to me, it's, it's a perfect marriage of melody, but also production mm-hmm. and lyrics that aren't distracting because we're not big lyrics people yeah but if a lyric really sticks out in an unflattering way then it could you know distract you from yeah we like lyrics that like are clever and quirky or like that suit that serve the song but in this case it's like if you have all those ingredients in that pot it's just like you don't want the lyrics to be the one thing sticking out like a sore thumb but in this case the songs that we've picked are like like they're I can't think of anything wrong with them. They're so yeah, good. They're, they're really airtight songs. That's I think the that, thing. That's airtight. the word, airtight. Yeah. These songs, you can't change a single thing about them because they're perfect. And of course, this isn't a definitive list. This no. actually might be the first in a series of perfect pop songs. We originally had a list, I think, of, you know, I think we each had 30. Oh, yeah, we could go on forever with this. And that's why this, you know, most certainly will be an, an ongoing thing. But... Should we quickly define what a pop song is? Should we put on our Dr. Rob Bowman hats? Ah, Yes. Dr. Rob Bowman is a professor that we both uh, had in university. Yes, he's lovely. You should look him up. He's called the rock and roll professor at York University because the guy has won a Grammy. Yeah, and he actually, he put, he brought pop music to... uh, Sorry, pop music studies to North America. He brought pop music studies to North America. And his whole thing is he loves turning this question to the class and asking them, what is a pop song? Like, yeah. How do you define a pop song? Mm-hmm. He basically thinks it's kind of an elusive term that you can't actually, you can't actually define pop music because it's just, how do you define what's popular? Because yeah. you can say a pop song is something with a dance beat, but that wasn't what a pop song was 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it might not be what a pop song is 50 years from now. For me, a pop song is a song that was just designed to be accessible. It's a song that was designed to appeal to a wide group of people. Or it's a song that wasn't designed to appeal to a wide group of people, but does. And that could be because of what you said before, that it's it's really catchy, it's yep. an earworm, or anything like that. To me, that's what pop music is. And it could be anything from, you know, a catchy folk song to a catchy... Uh, you know, Norwegian black metal song. (laughs) I don't think it has anything to do with chart success. I just think it's a song that's really accessible to a lot of people. Yeah. Sometimes even the ones that you don't expect to be as accessible, like the one that comes to my mind instantly for that is somebody that I used to know. That was such a surprise 
breakthrough hit by um, Gautier, Gautier. <laughs> um, but that, to see something like that, where it just, it happens to resonate with the current moment and with people listening to it for particular reasons. So I think that's just as interesting to analyze as something like a Kelly Clarkson song or like a Taylor Swift song or what have you. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, pop, like you said, is a super, super broad term. But at the end of the day, I agree with you in a sense where it comes down to being tailored for the masses in terms of accessibility. Yeah. And I don't think like, you know, talking about pop music, if you were to compare, you know, LMFAO's Party Rock. To Rolling in the Deep by Adele. Sgt. Pepper by the Beatles. Those are all pop songs, but they don't really sound that similar. Yeah. And the one thing that they do have in common, the common denominator, is that they're accessible. Yeah. A lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds can get into these songs because they have something about them that just digs into your brain and, and you can't stop humming them. And that's a pop that's song. That's what it is. It's the hummability. That's definitely not a word, but we're going to call it one for now. Can a lot of people hum it? Yeah. And like sing it back to you upon even first listen. Like that's what's so interesting to me. And when an earworm, can, someone can hear it and it's instantly stuck in the head. And mm -hmm. you and I have had this where like you'll laugh because I'll go shopping at like Nordstrom or Value Village and I'll come home and I'll be singing the song and then you'll sing it to your dad over voice note or something. Mm -hmm. And then he can remember it just based off of that. Exactly. And and that's how you know a song is good because cutting through the noise and the distractions and the obstructions and mm -hmm. then it's just the melody is just what's piercing through and getting to you. Exactly. So what we're going to do today is actually pick 10 perfect versions of these. So yeah. I think we should just uh, shut the hell up and uh, jump right into it. <laughs> shut the hell up and jump into our songs. Okay. So I got the first one. So this song is one of my favorite songs, If It Makes You Happy by Sheryl Crow. Bianca, why is this a perfect song? I think this song is perfect and it, it's essential that it's on this selection that we have today because it is anthemic. Because this is a song that I can enjoy just as much in my bedroom, in my underwear, dancing around and by myself as I can at a concert filled with people screaming at the top of their lungs waiting for that moment in the song. Fully clothed. Yeah, fully clothed. Point, fully clothed. I'm not imagining anyone in their underwear. No one's in their underwear. Got Everyone's it. clothed. Got it. Um, my point being that this song is just incredibly anthemic. And each time you hear the chorus, it's like it's the first time you're hearing it all over again. And this brings like, a, it's almost like this like cathartic release. Like you get this like, I don't want to say there's like this religious flavor to Sheryl Crow because that's all sorts of craziness, but it makes you feel like it just like it has this sense of spirituality to it almost because it's so anthemic. Do you know what I mean by that? I agree with you, but let's talk about what anthemic means. Yeah. How would you define an anthemic song and why is this song anthemic? Something that people can just scream and sing along to and it feels good to do it. That's, and even yeah, though, yeah, perfect, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's not just that you're screaming along to it, it's that it feels right. Mm -hmm. And maybe like, satisfying. We, yeah, it's satisfying to the ear. And even though we can't sing like Cheryl Crow or other people on this list, 
It's that the enthusiasm of people listening to a song like this, it gives them this uplifting feeling to the point where no matter how bad or how good of a singer they are, they're going to sing along to it and try to hit those notes to the best of their ability because it just feels right to do so. Right. That's how I feel about it. And it's interesting to look at the structure of the song because I'd say that the big takeaway is that the song's anthemic quality is the reason that it's a perfect pop song. Uh, yeah. Because when that chorus comes in and she's growling her voice, oh. she sounds desperate. Like if it makes you happy, you can't be that bad. Um, it's really satisfying to hear. So let's talk about why it works in this song. Yeah. And I think the obvious thing is that there are certain dynamics to the way she's singing, right? Mm -hmm. So the song starts, she's almost singing... Like the song, like it begins and it kind of has a Keith Richards kind of. There's a, tw a Stonesian twang to the guitar. Late 60s, yeah. early 70s Stones kind of vibe to it. You can almost imagine Keith Richards playing those guitar bends. Yep. But she's singing in almost like a Kurt Cobain slacker croon. I belong, long way from here. Put on a poncho. Okay, so I'm happy you said Kurt Cobain because I said she also employs the very 90s dynamic structure, which is the quiet, loud, quiet. In a way, it's not as extreme as something like Smells Like Teen Spirit. Mm. but it's still present, right? Where you still have these verses that are a bit more low key. They're still driving, they're still pushing you ahead, but they're nothing in comparison to the dynamic range of the chorus, right? Yeah, when we talk about dynamics, we're talking about peaks and valleys in um, in volume, yep. essentially, or in, in the way something's sung. So what we're talking about with the verses is she's starting the song and she's singing really low. Mm -hmm. Put on a poncho. Yep. By the time she gets to the chorus, She's screaming. So those are the dynamics of the vocal delivery where she's almost kind of whispering. Mm -hmm. And then by the time the chorus comes in, she's screaming. So those are the peaks and valleys of this song. The interesting thing is that because she's singing in this croon, the song sounds very moody and very grounded. It's, it's almost like it's a very earthy song. But then by the time the chorus comes in with all of those subtle harmonies in the background, it's satisfying it's like a release like, like yeah that's a, what it is it's the release there's yeah. a weight coming off of your shoulders and and it just feels free like a blue sky has just appeared above you and i can guarantee that whoever's singing along to that chorus their eyes aren't open they're shut like they're singing along to that and their eyes are shut and they're feeling it and that's why to me it's it's so anthemic um but yeah the release is a great point there's something about that chorus that, like I said, every time you hear it, it is like it's the first time you've heard it. And I think mm. the reason why is because she's not just jumping an octave, she's jumping an octave and a half. But for those of you who don't know, an octave is a better way to explain it. So how would you explain an octave simply? The best 
way to explain it is when you're singing the same note, but in a higher register. Exactly. So the best example is Somewhere Over the Rainbow, mm-hmm. where she's going, Somewhere. Those are the same notes, but just in different registers. Somewhere. Mm-hmm. You can also do it higher. Somewhere. Yeah. Can't Whereas here, she's like, that. What, is she, what does she do here? She's like, if it makes, and she goes up so high. Yes, yeah, so you have this huge octave jump, and it's just so pleasing to the ear because it's this rise you don't expect. Mm-hmm. And the reason it works is because she's grounded you, grounded the listener through the first verse, through basically the first minute and a half, because it's a pretty long song for a pop song. It's five minutes. She's grounded the listener by just singing in a low croon. And she's getting you used to it. She's pulling you into this web of just singing in this low voice Mm -hmm. that by the time she screams the chorus, it's like a scene change. Yeah. And the chorus, it has this like Lennon-esque delivery to it in terms of like her voice breaks in terms of rasp and texture at the perfect points in a way that like John Lennon recording Twist and Shout, like the most tired take that he could possibly get ends up being the, the lucky take because he's so exhausted and his voice has this like withered character to it. And that's what this song, this vocal performance gives me mm-hmm. and i think that's that definitely contributes to the overall anthemic quality of this particular chorus but also the song and not only that but it's not just the way she's singing it's the words she's singing so there's yes. nothing more satisfying than when she goes i'm not the kind of girl you, you take, take home. home and then she screams right after that right yeah That's so sassy, and it, it it has so much attitude that by the time the chorus comes back in, you're like, oh, that was that was really oh, cool. Got it. Um, I love Cheryl Crow. <laughs> but in terms of lyrics, this song has really interesting lyrics. <laughs> Wait, can we talk about your joke you have with Cheryl Crow lyrics? I always mime this scene where I pretend I'm Cheryl Crow's guitarist, <laughs> and I'm we know what the music sounds like, and we're jamming, and then she comes in and she's like, guys, guys, I just finished the lyrics. <laughs> So we're just vibing out, playing the song, and then she starts reading the lyrics, and she's going, put on a poncho, pray for mosquitoes. And as the guitarist, I'm just pretending I'm so confused, but I'm still vibing out. You're like, what? Yeah, and, and like, this song has very weird lyrics. Like, there's the one part, which which is... The song, um, every Sheryl Crow song is weird lyrics. Yeah. I'm going to soak up the song as like, my friend, the communist. The communist, and then uh, all I want to do is have some fun. Weird lyrics. Yeah, she's a kooky gal. But the lyrics to this one, you know, we're talking about Geronimo's rifle, Marilyn's shampoo, and Benny Goodman's corset. Those all sound like great American novels. Yeah, no. I would have pretended to read in high school. It seemed cooler than I was. (laughs) So the one question I'm going to ask you is, this is a song where the melodies are airtight. You know, you have the verse melody... Long way from here, put on a dun dun, yep. dun, 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 dun. Satisfying melody, it can't be any other melody. The chorus, dun, 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 dun. can't change that. But are the lyrics distracting or do they pull you in and captivate you? Personally, they pull me in and captivate me because I think 
because maybe I'm not somebody that cares much about the lyrics. If I care about words, I'm going to read a novel or I'm going to... not the kind of girl who reads words. <laughs> Which is ironic because writing is one of my biggest passions. And I'm like, I'm very much a stickler with editing and writing and phrasing. Like, that's a big thing, big part of my life. Okay, okay, okay. But if like, you're interested in song lyrics, go read a poem. Thank you. And that's my exact point. I care about, like you said, the melody, the rhythm, the textures, yada, 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 that whole picture. So yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't pull away from anything for me. If anything, I think the lyrics are good because... To me, a song like this where it's like, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. All these nonsensical things she's mentioning, if it makes you happy, can't be that bad. Who cares what it's about? It's just like, if it makes you happy, it doesn't matter what it is. And just for the record, we do like lyrics. And especially if it's a really good lyric or it's a lyric that reflects the story of the writer, for example, all the songs on Sob Rock or on Sour. But But we we, don't like songs purely on the merits of lyrics. Like Bob Dylan. Exactly. Music is the marriage of lyrics and melody. And Mm -hmm. the lyrics don't need to be that sophisticated because you have the music coloring the emotion. Yeah. Whereas poetry, the lyrics have to be jam-packed with imagery, right? Totally. Um, I think that would be the one thing that I would say for some people, they might think it's a little distracting lyrically, but the melody is just so airtight, you can't change a single thing about yeah. it. And even you mentioned Bob Dylan. She's so known for her Dylan-esque delivery, like I mentioned before, but even this one, the end of the chorus when she goes, then why the hell are you so sad? Like, yeah. I'm like that is yeah. so painfully Bob Dylan. I'll take Cheryl Crow over Bob Dylan. Oh, are you kidding me? Any damn day. I don't believe you. She introduces another melody in the guitar solo. Julian, I was just about, I literally wrote in my notes right here, it's like, all those two. Yeah. I'm like, those are so good. And for some reason, they just hit the ear exactly where you want it to hit. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, such a fantastic song. And we're not the only ones who thought that because if it makes you happy, eventually won the 1997 Grammy Damn for right a best rock song. So. Yeah, and I think she. I think it only peaked on number ten on Billboard Hot 100. In my eyes, this is a number one hit. But what can you do? But yeah, this is just like to me, the song is just like such a great example of a perfect pop song for all these reasons. And like, even like the stack, like the harmonies in it. Like I said, the exhaustion, her vocal performance, like all these elements just give it that perfect sense. stew. Yeah, it's the perfect stew for that anthemic release. And release, like you said, is like the perfect word to describe why the song made it on my top. Or my, my five for this week's selection, but like my top in general, I would say. Yeah. And again, just to summarize, it's it's the uh, the dynamics of the song. It's the octave jump, but the big one being that release. So. Oh, yeah. And maybe we'll see that with some other songs on this just list. Just maybe we might, you know, we just might. Shall we move on? I think we shall. Let's go into your next song. So would you like to introduce it for me? Yes. Thank you for the British accent. The next song that, well, I guess the first, the first song that I chose is Private Eyes by Hall & Oates. And, you know, you've listened to the first two episodes. You know that I'm not a huge 80s fan, but this song to me is a perfect pop song. So I think this is a perfect pop song, and it's not just a great example of a pop song, it's a great example of a song where every piece can't be removed. Like, everything is so airtight that you can't change anything about it, and it's a perfect marriage of production, melody, and lyrics. 
There's a lot I want to say about this, and it's very difficult to unpack why this is a perfect pop song. I know, because, we're struggling with this. Because everything about it is so perfect. I think that the best way to start is by highlighting a songwriting trick that Sheryl Crow also did with the previous song, and that's when the verses and choruses are in different types of keys. So with this song, the verses major and then the chorus is minor and that's a mood change that when the chorus comes around it completely catches you off guard and surprises you and it was the same thing with if it makes you happy where the verses are major and the choruses are minor so as an example i have my guitar here this song starts with the verse where it goes that's a major chord it's c Whereas the chorus is private eyes. It's minor. So when that comes in, it's a bit of a mood change. And it was the same thing with If It Makes You Happy. Yeah, it's interesting. And if you remember from, we talked about this in our first episode, for those of you maybe that don't understand music theory as much, major sounds happier and brighter and minor sounds more somber, darker, or moody. It just depends on what it's paired with. Yeah. And especially with, with this song where it starts kind of jaunty. I see <laughs> Jaunty you is see calling notes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Defines uh, jaunty. <laughs> really interesting chord progression uh, in the verse where it really has these kind of intense and moody chords, but then the chorus comes in, it's just really dark, but there's hand claps accentuating it. It's almost like... They're thunderous. It's like they're, <laughs> they're sprinkling the best sugar in your ears. It's just the greatest sound you've ever heard. And then when he hits the hook of the song, I mean, there's two hooks in the chorus. The first hook is the private eyes that rise into it with the clap. They're watching you. They see your every move. Then when it gets to the falsetto part, private eyes, there's a vulnerability there, but it's just so satisfying because it's hitting this sweet note and it's like candy. It is very much like candy. And I'm happy you said note because I want to touch on this one thing that you and I always talk about privately, but we've never like talked about maybe with other people. So Even when you and I- my doctor doesn't know. Yeah. <laughs> When you and I are listening to music in public places, privately, where the hell ever, we'll be listening to something, and then all of a sudden, you and I will both react, without even looking at each other, the exact same way, at the same time, because we hear what we refer to as the nasty chord. Or the nasty note. The nasty note. could be either or. You don't really need to understand what note they're playing. It's just you can tell when a note's a nasty note. There's a sense of, there's a, a dissonance to it where it's, it's unexpected and it takes you by surprise, but it is so pleasing to the ear. And this song, because of its, um, you know, it's very sophisticated in its chord progression, it has the, that nastiness just baked within it, which is pretty yeah. cool. The nasty note for me or the nasty chord for me is when a song's chord progression goes somewhere where you don't expect it to, but it's just so, it feels so good. It's almost, it's usually kind of, kind of bluesy in a weird way. Mm -hmm. It's like a, it's an, a complicated chord, but it hits a note where it's kind of like a bit. But you of an, don't really hear it in like in blues music. Like it's, no, you don't hear it in blues. But music, it is bluesy. It, it's like a bit of sassiness with like a, a weird chord voicing. So if you're we're big uh, soft rock guys in the house, 
not sob rock to be confused with, but soft rock, a band like Bread, for example. A lot 70s, of nasty chords. Oh my goodness. Like the nasty chords that Bread has. Mm-hmm. Here's an example. And when my love life is running dry, you come and pour yourself on me. If a so because we're talking about nasty chords, here's where Hall and Oates gets the nasty chord real nice. So in this song, it would go, I see you, you see me, but they're playing a dun, 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 dun. So. Now, what would be the expected chords that people's ears would typically think, anticipate is gonna happen? I see you, you see me, but dun, 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 dun. Boring. Very happy, very typical. But this one, you see me, but that's sexy. That's jazzy. That's oof. Those are the same chords as "Kiss from a Rose." Another banger. "Sail on Sailor" by the Beach Boys. are jazz chords but they're bluesy in terms of they're going to kind of a, a soulful yeah. i just named three genres like remember we in the olivia rodrigo episode it was like deja vu like that note yeah Ooh, like there's that, that like you said like that sassiness to it but anyway yeah this song is like riddled with these like beautiful chord movements and actually i was reading an interview with john oates in guitar player magazine and he was saying that private eyes is one of their best songs but also their most complicated to play in his eyes so i thought that was interesting i also think this song could really have like a temptations quality to it if you gave it a motown makeover that's really interesting and I think that there are other boy bands that would also mm. do this song really well. But see, to me, that kind of to backtrack a little bit, that's also the makings of a perfect pop song is that you can give it any production, any genre makeover, yes. and it stands up on those legs and it's still a great song, whether it's country, EDM, whatever makeover you give it, it's just, it's a good song and exactly. it has bones at the end of the day. The Temptations could easily do this song, but this song... I'm putting it on record right now. This song invented in sync. Yo, that's a good one. That's true. Listen to Tearing Up My Heart, I Want You Back. They all owe it to this song. The 
This song invented late 90s, early 2000s boy band music, and it's the perfect marriage of everything. And we're going to actually uh, talk about a couple of songs by the main songwriter of the 90s, 2000s boy band revolution coming up. Coming up. <laughs> um, it's like those songwriters, specifically certain Swedish songwriters oh, the in the 90s, yeah. they studied this song and they heard the percussion, the way the lyrics use a certain metaphor, the idea of a private eye or private eyes. And the idea of a melodic rise, private eyes. That rise is something we're going to see later with Taylor Swift and other stuff we look at where you see this melodic contour that it just like, that's a huge part of what makes a song a perfect pop song. And then the other thing that it does really well is at one point it strips away all the music and it's just hand claps and it's just like this song was designed for a stadium. <laughs> and speaking of design for a stadium, you might notice that this song is very similar to Radio Gaga by Queen. And I think... Uh, I like this one better. I think Radio Gaga ripped it off from this because this song came out before Radio Gaga. Ooh, hot take, but I'm with it. They're very similar songs, similar hand claps. <laughs> and I think he heard that break where the music stops and it's just the hand claps and that, that driving beat. And that's where Radio Gaga Live Aid came from. I think it's funny too to think about hand claps because like with Hall and Oates I can just picture like a sea of like old white people clapping on the one or like really waiting for that chorus <laughs> you. They see you. Yeah. and then they wait <laughs> yeah and then the other thing that the song does really well other than the beautiful harmonies and that kind of John Lennon vocal delivery oh, we mentioned this, him twice okay I said this so actually funny thing at my little birthday thing this year my sister was like Julie and I, we had a few too many that night and Asia looks over at us and she goes, you guys need to watch what you're doing on your phone because you've played Private Eyes by Hall & Oates like 10 times tonight. And I remember saying, I was like, Asia, it's like if John Lennon was in the 80s and like a Hard Day's Night era, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and to me, like, it's true. You know what? In that case, I think we were a little right. To me, this, this sounds like a very, very Lennon-esque, like, note it is the attitudes Lennon-esque. It has like a you can't do that Hard Day's Night era Lennon yeah. attitude to it, yeah. which I think is which really interesting. Which had a lot of bluesy vocal notes, yeah. right? a lot of sassiness and a lot of uh, frustration in, in the voice. The other thing the song does really well is that in the chorus, it has a single synth note that sustains the entire chorus. And you can hear it just in the background. It's holding one note throughout the entire chorus. And it's like, even though there are all these changes in the chorus, there's that one note that's keeping you grounded. Mm -hmm. That That's home. That That's what's keeping you thinking... I recognize this note. I'm just going to stay on that note, even though everything else is changing. Mm -hmm. it's, and like it's like an anchor. It's an anchor. 
Yeah. Sonic Anchor. It's we a love Sonic that. Anchor. This is a song that owes a lot to Todd Rundgren, who produced Hall & Oates early who on. Who we love. We love who Todd. we love. We met Todd Rundgren. And then somehow this song that was a very Todd Rundgren-esque song became the progenitor of boy band music. It's so funny because I, I never would have thought this would be a Todd song, but those verses are incredibly Todd. 100%. I could hear him singing it. It's, it's really interesting that you said that. But now I'm a man. I look like a man. Yeah, but I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's like every time you and I were almost like racing each other to pick our selections for this. I'm like, no, I want to pick that one. And this is definitely one that was on my rotation too, because I was like, oh, like I love this song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but the seller for me, just just a, a final note on this song is that brief pre-chorus. When it's watching for lies, you can't escape lies. Dun dun, private eyes. It's a very short pre-chorus, and it's like you know there's a momentum change something's coming something's mm-hmm. coming and it's it's taking you from that happy verse into kind of this sadder pre-chorus that's very short and you know something's coming and then when it comes with that delicious percussion it's just perfect it's yeah. so satisfying and that's for me what makes this a perfect pop song it's satisfying because it does these twists and turns that keep you interested but then hit every note that they should hit Okay, well, with that, that was that was a great pick. Let's go on to, which is my pick, lucky number three for me. Very interesting pick. This is, are you kidding me? Interesting or unexpected. This is one of the best ones ever. I now present to you a 2005 composition by a man named Drake Bell. I found a way. Ignore my half British accent, please. Well, I never thought that it'd be so simple, but I found a way, I found a way. Thought that it'd be too crazy, but I found a way. I found a way. If you open up your mind, it's gonna take some time to realize. But if you look inside, I'm sure you'll That was I Found a Way by Drake Bell, written as a theme song for his Nickelodeon show, Drake and Josh, where he was, as you can imagine, Drake. This song has been a favorite of mine since I heard it as the theme song when I was a kid. And I remember we were in Portland and we were leaving and I was trying, I was telling you about the song and I was like, oh my gosh, Julian, like you need to hear the song. Like, I don't know if you remember it, but it's so good. Like, it's like, it fits the credentials of every single thing we love in a perfect song. I need to show you it. And we're at this restaurant and the Wi-Fi wasn't working or my, my data wasn't working. Nothing was working. And I was like, oh my God, like, I need to connect to the Wi-Fi to this restaurant so I can show you the song right now. And so I start standing on this chair outside. We have all of our suitcases around. It's so chaotic. And I'm lifting my phone to the bricks and I'm like, like, please work. And I finally showed him the song. And he was like, oh, yeah, 
the sloughs. Uh, and just for context, at that point, we were actually compiling a Spotify playlist devoted to the power pop music genre. Oh, I know. And I had that down it's too. It's about 28 hours long now. And she was trying to show me a potential power pop song that we could add to our list. And it made the list. We're constantly like racing each other to find this list. We're, we are going to have a full episode on what is power pop and how it's most people's, uh, that's, a, that's a bit of a stretch, but a good chunk of people's favorite genre without them even realizing that it is. Yep. We're really going to dig into power pop in a dedicated episode to that. But for now, let this be a taste of what power pop is because this track is definitely exemplary of what that genre is. And we also have some other tracks coming up that are as well. But yeah, this song's amazing. They wrote it for, he wrote it in one session for the theme song. Um, he had one co-writer. And originally this theme song for Drake and Josh was going to be a Lenny Kravitz song because they thought that's what's popular. Oh, no. And now I'm picturing like watching Drake and Josh and it's like, Nick, 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 Nickelodeon. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell? Like, this only makes sense to me. But yeah, this song to me is like the most Adam Schleisinger song that never Adam Schleis sang. However, I should phrase that. Oh no. Rest his soul, a favorite songwriter of ours, Adam Schleisinger. For those of you who don't know, is the bass player and main songwriter of Fountains of Wayne, who you will definitely know from Stacy's Mom. But to me, this song, when they well, when they wrote it, they thought it sounded like Elvis Costello. And so they were really excited about that. But to me, it sounds so much like something that Adam, I could hear that. Yeah, I could. I could hear like a Veronica. Found a way. I found a way. Yeah, like there's definitely like the voice? an Elvis Costello flavor to it. But to me, it just it sounds so much like Adam Schleisinger because the song bears a lot of structural similarities, a lot of other similarities to that thing you do, which he wrote for the film of the same name, which was directed by Tom Hanks, which you showed me. And that's actually we talked about this recently, like our favorite songs that the other one. Like my favorite songs that you've shown me and vice versa. And that thing you do, both the movie and the song are like up there for me in terms of like favorite things you've ever shown me. That could be an episode too one day. Oh, I love that one. Here's an example of that thing you do written by Adam Schleisinger for the film of the same name. another perfect song that was on my list too but i figured we would have some sort of other episode or something to deal with digging into that more spoiler alert that one's going to be on one eventually oh yeah we'll, we'll get into that one but to me like they just they it's it's kind of like when the 90s and early 2000s did the 60s right and you have this like british influence on americans post brit pop and mod revival in the 90s and you have these um you know it has similar harmonic textures and melodies and chord progressions and it has that really that retro sensibility to it that that thing you do is just like totally exemplary of yeah this is a really beatlesque song and you can really hear it in those major to minor chords it's gonna take some time to realize. I think it's C sharp minor to F sharp minor. 
Yeah, or something like A minor. So what you're hearing there is that's a very Beatlesque move. We actually talked about that in our first episode where it goes from happy to sad really quickly. That's a very bittersweet sound. And that's what makes this song Beatlesque in my opinion. And that's in a lot of 60s music. Yeah, to me, like the similarities between that, it just, it sounds so much like 90s, 2000s doing 60s, which is that 100%. thing you do, right? Because that thing you do came out, what, 1996, 1990? Either way, it's that era doing the 60s, right? And even like the part where he's like, if you open up that part, it's a very similar to the part in that thing you do where it's like, but it's just so hard to do. Yeah. That part, like they're so similar to me, like those the two parts of those songs. If you open up your Yeah, this is a really sweet song and like in terms of lyrical content it's about brotherly love and always being there for each other so kind of similar to like if it makes you happy like it's a very uplifting narrative that they're providing from the protagonist of the lyrics it has a very nursery rhyme verse that has a tag baked right into it immediately when the song starts which is i never thought i can be so typical i found a way i found a way so that tag right there is an earworm right away and the song just starts right so and and that's an airtight melody it's a simple melody it sounds like something that you would hear in a playground but it's just so satisfying to the ear and it's a hook right off the bat the song is just so perfect melodically the only thing that could like it doesn't even bother me but the only thing if i could say about it that makes me kind of laugh is like his vocal delivery in the chorus kind of reminds me of like hinder do you remember hinder like lips of an angel no where it's like the Hinder was like that song. It was like, honey, why are you calling me? Do you remember? He had like such a rasp his voice, no. almost like Chad Kroger from Nickelback. But I know what you're talking about because it sounds like he's putting on a voice. And even like in the chorus, like, it's going to take some time. Like that, like is very like he's putting on that voice. It sounds it to me like me, like when, whenever you hear like Jack Black pretending to be a rock singer. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> it's going to take some. It's like a little too much. The, but the song's so good that I don't even care. The song is so good that I could definitely give a pass to the bridge, which I don't like. No one cares what you give. You know you gotta live like you wanna live. I don't like the bridge. Oh, interesting. I think it's just so cheesy. Yeah, live like you wanna live. No, what it reminds you of, it reminds me, me, the comma, the lexicon of 2000s teen girl movies. It reminds me of In Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen when she's like, it's Lindsay Lohan's song. She's like, life is a work of art. You gotta make it colorful. Some of you listening will know what I'm talking about. Julian definitely has no idea. He's like no, looking at me like I'm a ghost yeah. right now. Anyway, it kind of has like that level of cheesy 2000s-ness to it, which is something that panders to your girl quite nicely, but maybe yeah. not the general public as much. It, it kind of reminds me, I feel like this song suffers from the same sins as Much Better by the Jonas Brothers, which I love much better, but I can't stand the middle section of it where it goes into like a, like a bluesy like horn break. Yeah, yeah. And it just, it's a completely different mood. It's almost like a 50s throwback. And this song to me is just like too, too like, it's trying to be bluesy. Did it take you out of it a bit? It takes me out of it because the whole song is like a Beatlesque mood and then it goes into this one section that that's a little cheesy to me. And I don't think it fits tonally. But the rest of the song is awesome. So that that's the one thing that I would say holds it back from being a perfect pop song for me. 
Okay. I also think it's funny because people kind of has like a Mandela effect, bro. It has like a, people always think that the lyric is realize when it's it's going to take some time to realign, which I think is funny. But in terms of like other tricks throughout the song that I think are interesting is that in the chorus, you have these really cool accented drum hits where it's like over your shoulder, poo, know that you, like those, that part right there is really effective because it really just drives the lyrics home. Mm-hmm. I think that's amazing. But my favorite, favorite observation I had when listening to the song was that at the part where he's like picking you up when you're down, because he goes picking you up when you're down, and he goes yeah. down to that minor and those note. Beatles harmonies in the he background. He goes down yeah. to the minor note, but then those Beatles harmonies they sound like they are literally and figuratively holding you. You're falling down, and you're being picked back up and resolved to like the tonic note of the melody. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like it's like. Yeah. Where it's like you're like you're falling down, but you're being picked yeah, back up by your yeah, brotherly figure. So it's that. like in that case, the thematic content is being mirrored in the, the harmonies and the melody, but also the lyrics. Yeah, that's a that's good, um, good And that was like my favorite observation I had from listening to that again. And this um, is another song with great dynamics. Yeah, totally. Where, where the chorus is very grungy. It doesn't sound like grunge, but when I say grungy, I mean it just has kind of messy guitars. It's, it's louder than the verse. Mm-hmm. Where the verse is a little more laid back with some electric piano. And, and again, that goes back to If It Makes You Happy by Sheryl Crow. It goes back to Private Eyes with uh, when the synth comes in and the percussion. There's a bit of a dynamic shift. And again, dynamics are the peaks and valleys of a song. The volume changes. Yeah. And... In this case, for this song, it's not necessarily a vocal dynamic shift. It's more of an arrangement shift where it becomes very electric and very thrashy in the chorus. I know I was kind of roasting the vocal delivery earlier in terms of being like kind of like a little dated or what have you or trying to put on a voice. But Found Away by Drake and Josh, though, is just like it to me, it's just so much more than a theme song. It's it's a song that it's an experience. It's an experience, actually. If there was an art gallery for Drake and Josh, I would totally go. Yeah, to me, like anytime I mention this song to anyone our age, I actually think I was talking to our friend Reed about this when he was over for a photo shoot in the summer. We were like talking about perfectly crafted pop songs. We were like, oh yeah, like the Drake and Josh theme song. And I'm like, no, that's such a good example of one. It's just so good. Like it just, I don't know, all these years later, like it just, it's still, you'll hear it and you're like, I want to listen to that again. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. Those major to minor chords, those backup vocals, just how satisfying that that melody is Mm -hmm. and... There's a lot of ingredients here that point towards it being a, uh, a perfect pop song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's go to number four, I believe, right? Which is... Another 80s song. I've picked two 80s songs so far, and this song is... I think a... I have a few, too. You do. This song is Eternal Flame by The Bangles. I believe. You showed me this song. I had no idea what it was before. You know how I heard this song? How? You'll love this story. Why? <laughs> I was in a car with my parents and my dad has this USB plugged into his car that Aww. has a bunch of, as you know, a bunch of different artists in alphabetical order. 
So we were listening to the band, and after the last <laughs> song, I think, it, that. I think it was Ophelia by the band. After that song was done, it went into Bangles because that was after the band alphabetically, and it was this song. And I'm like, oh, what's this song? And then it starts, and actually walking you through my first experience listening to it is kind of the best way to talk about the structure of the song and why I think it's a perfect pop song. When I first heard the song, the, the opening lyric comes in, which is, close your eyes, give me your hand. I'm like, oh, it sounds like a musical. What is this? Do you feel my heart beating? Do you understand? I'm, I'm, like, oh. I'm like, oh my God, this sounds like, you know, it, it just sounds like like it could be like a Rodgers and Hammerstein song, like, like a, a musical number on Broadway. But then it goes to, do you feel the same? When that lyric happens, which is like, a lyric about uncertainty the chords become very kind of mysterious and creepy and i was like oh okay this isn't a musical number and then it goes into the tag of the song which is is this burning an eternal flame and i'm like okay this is a nice thing hearing it for the first time i realized it's an aaba song and that's um a song where there aren't really verses and there aren't really choruses what's an example of an aaba song for those that maybe don't know somewhere over the rainbow to mention that song again, because apparently that's a song that has AABA form and an octave jump. So maybe that is a perfect pop song. Let's just do a whole episode on that. For real. So an AABA song, like Somewhere Over the Rainbow, is when the song starts. The catchiest part of the song is the first part you hear. So somewhere over the rainbow in a pie. Are those choruses or are they verses? They're neither. They're a hybrid. For Me To You by The Beatles is like the definition of an AABA song where the song starts, If there's anything that you want, if there's anything I can do, just call on me and I'll send it along with love from me to you. That's the catchiest part of the song. And that's not the verse and it's not the chorus. It's a hybrid. It's a verse-chorus together into one thing. So is Eternal Flame the only song on this perfect pop song list that has an anti-chorus a la John Mayer and Sawbrock we were talking about? Is that the same thing or is that... No, no. Because an anti-chorus, I would say, is a chorus that doesn't go to a higher note. It kind of stays in the same vocal register. Whereas in this case, the catchiest part of the song is the first part you hear. Then the second part, which is, say my name, sunshine through the rain. That's like the middle eight. That would be almost, it's a middle eight, and a middle eight is basically a bridge. So that's a section of a song that goes to a different mood. It's not the chorus either. It's kind of just a little uh, intermission. Am I only dreaming? Is this burning an eternal Say my name, sunshine. I think this is a perfect pop song because 
it plays with your expectations. It's giving you this roller coaster of emotions where it starts, it sounds pleasant, where this person's talking about this relationship and then there's uncertainty and the song takes a creepy turn and then it goes into, is this burning an eternal flame? You know, and it's just this huge release. And every time the song threatens to break through because the arrangement is very tame, there's just bells, a stand-up bass, and this kind of like harp sound, like a synth harp, or like a synth nylon string sound. It's a very pleasant sounding song, and you're like, oh, it's going somewhere, it's going somewhere, and it doesn't go anywhere until the final part of the song. Am I only final section where there's crashing drums Very like waves good, yeah. it's like simon and garfunkel bridge over troubled water that is thunderous i yeah, mentioned that with hollow notes earlier but thunderous especially for this particular yeah. song and she finally finally hits that big note where she's an eternal flame and she's holding that note everything's just swelling and it just sounds massive and it's like all of her emotions are finally catching up with her can i tell you what i read when i was researching this song what did you read so i was reading about Oh, yeah. Susanna Hoffs, your, your girl crush. Well, this we know. So I was reading about Susanna Hoffs and the producer that she wrote this song with, he also produced Olivia Newton-John. And so he said to Susanna, he was like, the way I get the best vocal takes out of Olivia Newton-John is that I get her to undress. She goes completely naked into the vocal booth and she sings in the dark. And that's how I get the best vocal takes out of her. And that's what you need to do for Eternal Flame. And so Susanna Hoffs was like, oh shit, okay. <laughs> so she went and she stripped down, she was naked and she said she had sound baffles covering her and it was completely dark and no one could see her. But this was a prank. This producer made this up and this was a complete lie, which in my opinion, is like creepy as shit. Like that grossed me out so much to read that. Mm. But my point being is that even though that was made up and that was a lie, I can really hear the similarities in terms of vocal delivery between how Susanna Hoffs performs in this song and how Olivia Newton-John sings. Hello, I'm just a fool who's to sit around and wait. Like to me, there's a very much like a say my name. Like it's very like it's almost has like a musical quality to it. Yeah, yeah. This like song and usually like, that would bother me, but I love Olivia Newton-John's voice. I love it. I don't know. It's just a song that plays with the expectations. Where it's when it draws you in, you think it's a musical number. It sounds like like the spotlight is on. Her. It does teeter on that that musical. And degree. then it takes a turn where it becomes like a really cold autumn evening, and, and it's like kind of creepy. And it has like November vibes, kind of like a very, Twin Peaks flavor. Very November. And the best thing about this song, again, kind of foreshadowing some songs later on the list. Did you know this is Max Martin 
songwriter extraordinaire's favorite song. I thought you were going to say he wrote it. I'm like, get the fuck out. <laughs> this is his favorite song? This is his all-time favorite song. I could totally see that. I could really see that. Yeah. And this song is just, it's so... Is it like, is this like his Be My Baby with Brian Wilson where he pulls over if he's in the car and he hears a song and I he starts th- crying? I don't, think he, I don't think Max Martin's driving himself, to be honest. <laughs> he's like, pull me car over. <laughs> that was the what worst accent that Swedish was. accent I ever done. <laughs> <laughs> I should remove that from my acting profile that I can do a Swedish accent. Um, um, but yeah, this song, I agree. Like, I really love this song. And like, I remember when you showed me it for the first time, I was like, oh, this is like an interesting song. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like surprised that you were showing me it. But then once I learned it and I was singing along to it, I'm like, no, nah, this rips. I can it sing rips, it in the yeah. shower. And I think like part of that. Anthemic. Sing, that That's anth- an anthemic I was going to say, that anthemic sing song, sing along quality to it comes from the vibrato in Susanna Hoff's voice, which if you don't know, vibrato is like the, like the. that's like a really bad version our neighbors hate us by the way they really do but like that's an example of like what that is so if if she's if you're singing along to it it makes it like a fun song to sing along to yeah because it's very animated the vocal delivery exactly and i think again playing with with those expectations where it sounds like a musical but then it takes a turn and then being aaba format where the catchiest part hits you right when the song starts and then that anthemic quality and that yearning in her voice where mm-hmm. she just sounds completely desperate. And that's something that comes up in a lot of the songs. I was going to say, yearning is a popular theme throughout these, but also yearning and that whole... Uh, yearning is greatly informing her vocal delivery. And that's where I think I also hear the comparison to Olivia Newton-John because I also hear that in Hopelessly Devoted to You, the song she performs in Greece, my favorite in the whole musical. Like that song to me has that same level of yearning where the verses are a bit quieter. Dun, 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 dun. like all that's more soft and mm-hmm. sing-songy and then the chorus is just like her giving it her all yeah. and that's what eternal flame has for me as well yeah you know because eternal flame could go wrong many different ways like this song could become the rainbow connection i love wait why don't you like the rainbow i, I, know, you I love, love that song. i love rainbow connection Kermit. but i'm saying that rainbow connection is great for what it is it's a it's a a very musical theater type song you know specifically for the muppets whereas this song is trying to be something kind of romantic but the melodies are actually very similar between rainbow connection and eternal flame and if it wasn't for those few twists and turns where it becomes very dark and takes kind of a beatlesque turn then it could have been rainbow connection which i'm I... happy you said beatlesque too because i also wrote down i like how it fuses mccartney melodies with gospel tinge shimmering harmonies that's a note i made yeah i think there is definitely like i, I could see paul mccartney just like eating this song up he's like do right eternal flame um yeah and also i thought it was interesting to note too that the co-writers for the song also co-wrote true colors by cindy lopper what you re- yeah. what you recently mentioned you don't like cindy lopper neither do i really but you like that song no that's not the song i like oh wait i like shit. time after time oh whatever either way true colors is kind of like a, in a similar vein of <laughs> eternal flame um, do you even know me oh yeah okay <laughs> get out okay so now we're gonna move on oh another 80s song oh this is a great one. This is a song that I've loved since I was a kid and one that Julian made fun of me for when I presented him with my list of my choices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What song is it? The Best by Tina Turner. You're simply the best Better than all the rest Better than anyone Anyone Tears 
Well, 1989 was a great year for pop, apparently, because the Bangles' Eternal Flame came out that year. Taylor Swift wrote an album about that year. And also, this song came out in that year. So, this was the best. It was Tina Turner's version. She didn't write this song. The song was written by Mike Chapman and Holly Knight, but it was originally performed by Bonnie Tyler. That's such a Bonnie Tyler song, now that you say oh, it. Oh, but actually, so what's interesting is this song was popularized by Tina Turner. Most people know it from Tina Turner's performance because her vocal delivery is just amazing in it. Rod Stewart-esque. Oh my God, so <laughs> Stewartian. <laughs> I'll actually, I'll get into the differences between Bonnie Tyler's version and Tina Turner's in a bit. But you made fun of me for picking this song, which that was so funny. Okay, I'm like, okay. this is the perfect pop song, Julian. Here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I, I need you all to understand this. Let's get you, you picking this song, you presenting this list to me with this song on it, other than you saying yes to me asking you if you want to be in a relationship, this is the second biggest surprise oh, get out that's of ever happened. Because you've never played this song in front of me. What are you talking about? You've never about? mentioned this song. You've never mentioned <laughs> Tina Turner. Yeah. We've And all of our car rides, you've never played this song. This song has been practically invisible. I thought at first you were putting it as like a joke. This was the ghost of our relationship. I'm like, where did this song come from? This song has never been uttered by no, you ever. No, I love this song when I was younger because when I was a kid and I was I was in my share phase and my nickname was Diva because I loved all the divas. I really wanted... Still a diva. I'm not a diva. I really loved this song and I thought Tina Turner was so cool because I used to listen to her version of Proud Mary. And so I, lo I found this song and I loved it and I thought, oh, like, it's a very like a Cher type song. So I used to just watch it. I used to watch Tina Turner perform this all the time on my TV. Um, I was going to pick another Tina Turner song. Yeah, you mentioned that. Which one were you going to pick gonna again? I was going to pick River Deep Mountain High by Ike and Tina Turner because mm. I think that's a perfect song. But yeah, this song to me is just an example of a perfect, perfect pop song because it has a motif that anchors the song. It's simple, but incredibly effective. Motif meaning like the repeated phrase throughout the song is that repeating phrase right there is what anchors it. And to me that mixed with, you know, her vocal delivery, the anthemic chorus, once again, similar to all the songs you've talked about. It once again, like you said, creates that perfect stew of elements, making it like just such a catchy song that you're instantly singing back. That motif is in a lot of different songs. That motif is in The Winner Takes It All by ABBA. Mm. It's in Faithfully by Journey, Steal My Girl by One Direction. Oh, true. Summer of 69. It's the guitar It's the guitar riff yeah. of Summer of 69. The winner takes it all the loser standing small Beside the victory That's her destiny Circus life Under the beach of world We all need the crowns To make us smile 
Yeah, because this song, like that motif is really what just sticks out to me as something that really anchors the the composition. <laughs> but what really drives a song is, I think, too, the synth stabs and the, the very like police-esque percussive palm muted guitar. That's very shimmery too. And when I say palm muted, I mean palm muting is a, a technique of playing guitar in which you're putting the palm of your hand or the side of your hand or your, on, wrist. Or your wrist on the base of the guitar. And you're basically muffling the, the, the sound of the guitar so that it sounds more staccato and more like more muted plucky more plucky um an example of a palm muted guitar that you probably know is jesse's girl by rick springfield yeah so that's um that's what palm muting is and so that's a big part of the song and it also kind of reminds me of shot in the dark by john mayer i think there's kind of it bears some yeah. sort of textural and rhythmic similarities to that song we talked about last episode this song is less insurance company though yeah <laughs> yeah that was really funny but also what okay what i was gonna mention earlier that i thought was interesting was in the bonnie tyler version it's pretty similar in terms of like the mix and how the song's approached and whatnot but the main difference between the bonnie tyler version and the tina turner version is that when tina turner heard the song she was like 100 want to cover it but what the hell there's no bridge in the song there needs to be a bridge and so tina turner and her crew are the ones that wrote the bridge like the each time you leave me i'll stop moving That was only in the Tina Turner version. I really like that bridge. Yeah, that's a great bridge. Not my butchered version of me kind of haphazardly singing it now. But I can't stand the sax solo. Oh, my, Julian, I already wrote down. I'm like, you know what I hate more than anything? An unsexy sax solo. I, I can't do it. I Listen, I... I hate it too. I hate it so much. There are certain saxophones I like, but that kind of Clarence Clemens, E Street Band type sax, I can't I do agree. it. I agree. You know what? Unless if the sax is in like a brown sugar context, like a Rolling Stones 70s kind of feel, I can do it. I do not like saxophones. But can I tell you my answer to this? And this is why this is a perfect pop song. Because remember what I said before, a perfect pop song can be translated. You can give it a production makeover, a genre makeover. It's going to have its legs and hold up. James Bay, another favorite artist of mine, covered the best. And it is, I think, the best. Because instead of a saxophone, he's playing his guitar the whole time. And James Bay is an incredible guitar player. And it's a very, it's not self-indulgent like some guitar players would maybe play the song. It serves the song, but it's very like, very sexy. It's very moody. It has that palm muted feel to it. And the phrasing of it is beautiful. And he has, he, he includes the bridge. So he's doing Tina Turner's version, but there's no saxophone in that version. His version's amazing. I really love his version. If you haven't listened to it, you definitely should. But yeah, and I think too, it's interesting how like the melodies, another theme I'm realizing when we're talking about these songs is like the thematic content of the lyrics being mirrored in like what the melody is doing, right? Even the idea of like, like hang on to every word you say. It's like the melody's like, do, 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 do. It's like hanging on. Like it's like, do, 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 right? Yeah. 
Um, like she's literally hanging on. And even like in the chorus when it comes in where she's like, you're simply the best. It's a singular vocal delivery. It's like she has nothing else to say. You're yeah, the best. You're the best. But it's just and her then, saying it. And then the melody's doing the rest. And then when it's like better than all the rest, when that part comes in, it's a double tracked vocal or, or it may not be double tracked. It's or maybe, such a sing along chorus. It sounds like there's a yeah, hundred people like singing. Like there's people singing it with her. Exactly is my point. So it's like better than all the rest as if like the rest are singing with her, like uplifting. But the other similarity there compared to the other songs we've been talking about is that in order for that release to work where she's singing in a higher voice she has to make the verses almost a croon totally yeah so 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 she kind of pulls you in with this low croon yeah it's very limited and held back this melody that almost sounds like something stupid by frank and nancy sinatra Stand in line until you think you have the time to spend an evening with me. And if we go someplace to dance, I know that there's a chance you... It's this slow escalation, and then it's mirrored by the, um, the counter melody. And the counter melody is the secondary kind of background melody that isn't the main part. So in this case, it would be the sound in the background going... Dun, 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 dun. And it's like... Slowly, those are all escalating melody lines, and then finally, the releases you're the best, yeah, in the chorus. And yeah, I think that's one of the common threads with all these songs. There's a huge release in the chorus, it's like a pressure cooker, which I will talk about shortly with another song. So, I'm not gonna get into it, they're all but anthemic. I agree with you in terms of it sounding like uh, the Frank Sinatra, something stupid you said, right? I could totally hear that, I never booked that. But to me, the song, like structurally, it makes you crave the chorus. And especially you get this effect because she starts with two verses. So it's like it and stops the, and you think it's about to go into the chorus and then she gives you another verse. So it gives you this like sexy sense of like you're wanting something you can't have. And those verses right? for almost the entirety of them are on one chord. Yeah, it's creating this sense of not tension because of the chord she's using together. Yeah, when's but it going to change of, and where's it going to go when it changes? 100%. It's give, the lack of chords is giving you this like sense of desire, right? because you're like constantly harping on this one thing like she's harping on this idea that this person is simply the best also what i thought was really funny was um a study by co-op funeral care regularly places the best in the 10 most popular songs requested to be played at funerals <laughs> and that's like i know what they meant by like requests for like a funeral but like it's just picturing like a dj booth at a funeral <laughs> <laughs> Any requests? Yeah, Kung Fu fighting, please. It's like, sorry, Cousin Mike, we're closed for requests. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was funny. But yeah, the song is like the makings of a stadium anthem and also performs quite well in the context of a sports arena. And that's why a lot of teams have used a song when they win, they'll play the song. Hmm. Um, I don't know anything about sports, so don't quote me on which particular team. But it's, it's a funny, thing. It's funny that the song is called The Best and you're saying that it, that I guess it's played at a lot of sporting events. But then there's also The Winner Takes It All, which is also kind of a very similar song in terms of they have the same riff, basically. And that's another song about winning or being the best. Um, because once again, that's something that's very anthemic. It's meant to stadium. fill a stadium. Hey, yeah, exactly. I there's you just cracked it. Yeah, there's like, there's like a stadium sensibility to these compositions. Yeah. You know what if, I mean? If you're following along at home, just write down all of these Do observations. <laughs> all of these observations and you'll be a millionaire with your next hit Because we were even a little stressed out doing this. We're 
where like, okay, it's easy to like listen to an album and be like, you can like make fun of the song or you can kind of, this one you always have as much to say about. Whereas like these songs, it's like you have so much to say about them because you think they're so good and you have to like almost make your case for them. Where I'm like, oh my God, should have written this down better. But anyway, yeah, like The Best by Tina Turner is just an example of such a phenomenal pop song. And I think once again, it really proves that point that you can take this song, you could give it any makeover into any production style, any genre you want, it's gonna hold up, it's gonna be amazing. So at this point in our conversation, Bianca and I have made it halfway through our analysis of 10 perfect pop songs. When we were recording this, we ended up going until about three in the morning. So this was a very long and fruitful discussion that's about two and a half hours long in its entirety. That's not very digestible, so we've decided to leave you at the halfway point for now and split this analysis into two parts. If you like what you're hearing and you're feeling a little generous, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple. And if you'd like to reach out and tell us about your picks for perfect pop songs, shoot us an email at anythingbuttoto at gmail.com. A big thank you once again to Daniel Konikoff for creating our intro and outro music, and a big thank you to you, constant listener, for staying with us until the end. This is Anything But Toto, and we'll see you soon.